Welcome to this session with Grace Point Church of Euphrata, Washington. We are thankful that you are here with us today, and we want to greet any guests that are with us also as we continue a study in the Word of God uh, through these sessions this morning. Well, the new year has uh, quickly come and gone, and we're in the new year, and the holidays are past, and uh, so we are again settling in uh, to a series uh, from the uh, the book of Philippians in God's Word here. I'm going to pray, and then we will have some review for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your greatness and your goodness and your holiness. And uh, Lord, we pray uh, for each one. We pray for every believer that our love would abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that we would approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this word today. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us and comforts us and guides us and leads us. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are sovereign, that you are carrying out your perfect plan throughout all of the ages. And thank you for this time together here today. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. Well, again, welcome, and uh, as I said, we are continuing our study in the book of Philippians. We began this last fall, actually. We began this study in the book of Philippians. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I encourage you to have one uh, close by, whether it's uh, in book form or on digital form, and you can find this little letter to the church at Philippi in the New Testament. And uh, Philippians is a very precious book to many, many believers. I find that it's one of my favorites, uh, and so it's a joy for me to be able to uh, teach through this book, to preach through this book. Uh, but some of the most beloved verses are to be found in the book of Philippians. For instance, in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live uh, is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, we quote that quite often. Also in chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, here's a good one, and this is a, always a challenge to me. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Chapter 4, verse 11. That's a, quite a statement to be made. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Uh, what a promise there. Chapter 4, verse 19, and God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So uh, Philippians, we quote it often, refer to it often, and it is quite an encouraging book. Also, uh, just as a little bit of review here before we get into our passage for today is uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, is the author of the book, book of Philippians. He wrote it in about 61 or 62 AD while in prison in Rome. It's one of the prison epistles, including uh, it, uh, the prison epistles are also Ephesians, Colossians, this book, Phi, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. But uh, Philippians is not considered a doctrinal book necessarily, it's not nor, it is, but it is noteworthy as some great doctrinal statements. Uh, you know, the great doctrinal books like Paul wrote of, in Romans and uh, Galatians. But nevertheless, uh, this little letter, some five pages in my copy of Scripture, is filled with doctrine. <clears throat> it's very succinct. 
and it's very brief, but in fact, the entire argument of the book of Romans is found in one verse of the third chapter of Philippians where Paul writes of his desire to be found in Christ. And I quote chapter 3, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God is by faith. A whole summary of the book of Romans, essentially. Also, uh, the sum of his teaching, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the bodily resurrection, the summation of that is found here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. And Christ, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies that, so that we'll, he will, we will be like his glorious body, unquote. Uh, moreover, probably the, one of the greatest, what is called the Christological passage or a passage about Jesus Christ in the entire Bible is found in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where it tells us that Jesus Christ laid aside his pre-incarnate glory to take on the form of a human being. And so uh, we are greatly blessed by this little book, this little letter of the Philippians. You know, one of the prominent themes, and we've talked about this, if you remember, if you were with us before, uh, one of the prominent themes is the theme of joy in the book of Philippians. And essentially, uh, Philippians is, if you can summarize it, it's living the Christian life. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's how to live out the Christian life. If you were with us when we went through the little letter of Colossians last summer, uh, you know that that was pri primarily about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And here it is primarily about how to live out our faith, how to live out the Christian life. In fact, this message is entitled, in fact, it could be the title for the rest of Philippians, is Earthly Conduct of Heavenly Citizens, Earthly Conduct of of heavenly citizens and joy in the midst of our circumstances. And so uh, the Apostle Paul is concerned that uh, we get a grip on, uh, uh, on joy and on living the Christian life. And so the question is, of course, is are we running, are we uh, walking through our lives with great joy? And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this letter is addressed to you. Remember in chapter one, verse one, uh, he says it's to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And, of course, by extension, it contains great truths for us today and great application for us today. And so if you're a believer, we go through this letter, you will see that uh, the words joy and rejoicing and gladness occur some 19 times in these uh, five short pages. And then he talks also about our minds. Ten times he refers to our minds, and then thinking five times he talks about our thinking and then remembering at least one time. And so the secret to joy, if you want the key to joy, it's how you think. You know, you recognize this, our thinking is the beginning of an attitude, and our attitudes result in actions in life or how we live out our life. And, you know, there's a lot of things that can rob us of that joy can deflect us from thinking correctly about what God is doing. You know, our circumstances, our happenings can really distract us uh, from a focus in life. Other people, even people in our families and ones we love, can distract us from joy. Our possessions or lack of them 
and also worry and anxiety can eradicate uh, the joy that is ours to have as believers in Jesus Christ. So to get our problems and, and, and adversities into perspective is to enjoy the confidence <clears throat> and the hope that only God can give us in Jesus Christ. You know, our perspective on life is deeply influenced by our perceived purpose in life. Did you get that? Our perspective on our lives is deeply influenced by our perceived purpose in life. Now, we can have many purposes, such as work, family, children, significance, wealth, but really the supreme uh, purpose in our lives, what is it? It is to know Christ and to make him known, isn't it? The Apostle Paul models a life lived with laser-like focus, a life lived on purpose. In chapter 1, which we covered in previous sessions, all except the last paragraph, we see the Apostle Paul revealing his great love for the Philippians. He prays for them. He's concerned for them. Uh, he talks about his ministry, and we recognize that uh, he has a struggle. He has struggles in his life and struggles as he even writes this letter. In fact, uh, I want to point you to chapter 1, verse 12, where he tells us, I want you to know, brethren, and that, by the way, is brethren and the sisters, too, that my circumstances, my circumstances, some of your translations might have my happenings. All of us have happenings, don't we? We all have circumstances. These things that have happened to us and are happening to us, they're really a lot, most are out of our control at all. But he wants us to know, and he calls attention to these things that he believes is of great significance. And through the book of uh, Philippians, there's at least three things, and we're going to look at the first one here today, but it says, whatever happens, stand firm. Chapter 1, verse 27, in fact, he repeats the stand firm uh, command in chapter 4, verse 1. And so this idea of standing firm in the faith, of being uh, unmovable, and that the winds of controversy and circumstances aren't going to blow us over. And all secondly, whatever happens, press on. Chapter 3, verse 12, that we have a future and a goal. And this is a journey in the Christian life to the ultimate time when we will see Jesus face to face. And then thirdly, whatever happens, rejoice. There's that in chapter 4, verse 4. And we see the, the idea of joy and rejoicing and gladness over and over again. And notice in chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to know that my circumstances, my happenings, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Greater progress of the gospel, which is an interesting statement. As you recognize, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome, and his, uh, his movements are hindered, he, but he says the whole Praetorian Guard or the, the Empire's Guard has come to know Christ or come to be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's advanced the gospel. And I was thinking about our circumstances, thinking about this past year and thinking about the unknown of 2021 and recognizing that and asking myself the question, how have my circumstances, how have my happenings, have they advanced the gospel? And I think all of us could relate a lot of things we've lost and a lot of things we grieve over over this last year. And yet the question is, is how do they advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
And so the Apostle Paul in this letter is telling us and encouraging us, instructing us on how to live the, how to live the Christian life. We are earthly in the sense that we live on this planet, but yet we are citizens of heaven, basically, already. Earthly conduct of heavenly citizens. You know, the Apostle Paul faced, he was in prison. He faced great, great adversity and the threat of death. There was animosity, provocation, and yet he was confident that it would all turn out well. If you do a study through Acts and the epistles, you will see that it seems like, by some estimations, that the Apostle Paul spent a third of his missionary life in some kind of imprisonment and, or going to prison. And so the Apostle Paul was in great difficult times. Well, I want you to turn to chapter 1. We will be looking at the last paragraph as we continue our study through this letter in chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. The Apostle Paul is again instructing us in chapter 1 again. So let me read the passage. I'll read it for you. And uh, you follow along in your copy of God's Word, chapter 1 of Philippians, beginning in verse 27. He says there, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For, to see, for you it has been granted of Christ for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Lord, today we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us, guide us through this very short passage that we're going to look at today, and that uh, we would glean from it the things you want us to know, and that we would live changed lives because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 27 and 28, uh, we see this challenge here for believers in Christ that we would live tenaciously, that our lives would represent a tenacious attitude towards life itself. Uh, in other words, be resolute, steadfast in our lives. And that's the idea here. There's a great story about uh, the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, or the Russian dissident who was opposed to the Soviet Union when the Soviets uh, were over Russia. But he was an uh, enemy of the state, and so he was sent to prison to hard labor in the Siberian Soviet prison. And so he was in Siberia working at hard labor. And at one point, he'd become so discouraged and he wrote about this. He became so discouraged, he decided to give up and just die. His plan was to stop working with the hard labor out in the field and just lean on his shovel and wait for the guards to come over and beat him to death. However, when he stopped, another prisoner reached over with his spade and quickly drew a cross at his feet and then erased it before the guards could see it. Solzhenitsyn later said that his entire being was energized by that little reminder of the hope and courage we have in Jesus Christ. 
He found the strength to continue because a fellow believer cared enough to remind him of that hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. So living tenaciously, making that decision to be reminded of who and what Jesus Christ is and to be resolute and steadfast in the midst of our circumstances, no matter what our circumstances are. In the beginning of verse 27, it calls us to live faithfully, in faithfulness, to live consistently. Look at verse 27 again. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That uh, word that's translated in my, in my copy of God's word, conduct, uh, in verse 27, conduct yourselves. It's, uh, Paul uses a word that's of vital significance it's a Greek word only used by Paul in this epistle, and it's used in noun form in chapter 3, verse 20, but it's translated uh, citizen. Basically, it's citizenship. Uh, it, the lexicons, Greek lexicons, define it like this, discharge your obligations as citizens. Uh, we need to understand that Philippi was a Roman colony. And uh, they had the rights of a Roman citizen there. In fact, many of them had been transmigrated from uh, the Italian boot over to Philippi, over to the east. And it became extremely interesting and noteworthy that Paul uses this word because uh, the Romans took great pride in their citizenship and looked very seriously on its accompanying responsibilities. And so Paul is using this word. He's playing on their natural, strong sense of Roman identity <clears throat> and responsibility. But he's f focusing it first and foremost on their real citizenship, and that is with Jesus Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven, he writes in Philippians 3.20. He's exhorting them to live worthily and have their heavenly identity and conduct represent Jesus Christ in a manner that represents him well. That's their eternal homeland. And that's for us too, that's our eternal homeland. Yes, we're, we're citizens of a certain nation on this earth, but ultimately for believers in Jesus Christ, our citizenship is in heaven and our earthly conduct should come as we reflect on our heavenly citizenship. This entire letter, in other words, the entire letter of Philippians is gonna instruct us in how to be uh, citizens of heaven and yet live in this, our short stay here on earth. So he tells us to stand firm in verse 27. So he said, goes on to say, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm. And then he tells us that are not only are we to have faithful living, living consistently, but in verse 27b, that we are to be forceful in our lives. In other words, living cooperative, that we would uh, focus on this. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 27 there that standing firm in what? One spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so faith, forcefulness, living cooperatively. He talks about this being together, uses the word uh, that is a compound word in the Greek. And it's uh, striving together as athletes, like a team. And that's a picture of the Christian community. That's a Christian the uh, picture of us individually being part of something bigger than just us. So he talks about unity of persons, that you will stand fast in one spirit. Uh, you know, Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
and uh, nor can any army really effectively advance against an enemy while its ranks are turned against one another. Uh, this theme of unity will run throughout the entire epistle, and we see that God is concerned about our unity as believers in Jesus Christ. So unity of persons, and then secondly, unity of purpose. Not only stand fast in one spirit, but with one mind or soul, uh, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It means we are unified and that we have a purpose and a goal that we join together and we all agree upon, and that is the purpose of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The unity has a specific purpose undergirding it, the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. Striving together, it tells us, that word is found only elsewhere in Philippians 4.3, and it means to contend or to struggle, to wrestle uh, along with this. And so we faithful living in, in this tenacious type of lifestyle. There's faithfulness, there's forcefulness, and thirdly, fearlessness. Fearlessness in verse 28, living confidently. Look at verse 28, where he says, In no way, alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. The word there, alarmed, in my copy of God's word, is, uh, t means to be terrified or intimidated. Uh, it's, the, it's the idea of someone shying away from the battle because they are so terrified. And he it gives us instruction, knowing that we will face opposition as we struggle together for the gospel. It's certainly <clears throat> opposition is seen clearly here, and we're going to see some more here in a minute. But uh, when opposition assails us, how do we respond? Not to be intimidated, not to be frightened. He doesn't tell, tell us to retaliate against those who intimidate us. He gives us supernatural response. Don't be intimidated. Go about our business as usual. Don't allow the agents of Satan to intimidate us. And so Paul gives this further result of this supernatural response, because this only comes from Christ, because our natural response is for fear, is to be terrified. But first he says it's a sign to the unbeliever. Again, look at that. In verse 28, it's a sign of destruction for them, the opponents he talks about earlier, but of salvation for you and that too from God. It's a sign of for the unbeliever that uh, his impending judgment and eternal destruction is yet to come. And if they can't win over, win over Christians in this work, wicked world while Satan is loose, what will happen when the restoration of righteousness, what will be the response comes assigned to them of confidence in the living God that we have. And so, secondly, it goes as a sign to our salvation that there is a force greater than our own physical flesh that is upholding us and caring for us and our ability to respond supernaturally. We see unmistakable evidence that we are saved from the destruction that awaits the adversaries of Jesus Christ. We could never respond that way before we believed in Jesus for everlasting life. It's a foretaste of this ultimate vindication, which will be ours when Christ returns. And it refers to, refers to this salvation from God. So in those uh, couple of verses, we are called to live tenaciously. And in verses 29 through 30, we're called to live persistently. Persistently, or in other words, determined, single-minded. Some people call it dogged, in a sense. It's persistently. 
In verse 29a, we see the beginning of this. For if you have been grant, granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, what a great gift, and so far so good, but then the next part, but also to suffer for his sake. Ooh, I'm not sure I like that part. Uh, we tend to shy away from suffering and adversity, uh, and yet he goes on to say in verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So belief results in spiritual life, but accompanying spiritual life is opposition from the world. And uh, suffering results in spiritual muscles is one of the things that we re realize in that. I was thinking as we live a persistent, determined, single-minded life, the challenge is, is when our circumstances are difficult, when we are in adversity, when we struggle with things that are basically out of our control, we recognize that uh, in this spiritual life that we have choices to make. And how many times, especially this last year, when we face great adversity, difficulty, whether it's through the pandemic, politics, social conditions of our country, it may be in your own family, in your relationships and friendships. It's challenging to have a complaining, critical, accusing spirit, isn't it? I know it is because I see it on social media all the time from believers who have a complaining, critical, accusing spirit. But I think of the Apostle Paul. Now think about him. He's chained to Roman guards in Rome. Uh, he's not sure of his future. This was not his plan for his life, and yet God superintended that he would be here. God allowed these circumstances, even caused these circumstances, that he would be in prison. Now, he had a lot he could complain about. You know, uh, the Jewish authorities who arrested him and sent him off to Rome when he appealed to Rome. And the Romans, he could be critical and complaining of the Romans, of the Jewish authorities that rested, arrested him. But notice back in chapter 1, he refers to his imprisonment as for the cause of Christ. It's not the Romans, it's not the Jewish authorities, but it's for the cause of Christ, his happenings, his circumstances. Uh, you know, we don't like that because we want the crown without the cross. But the cross always precedes the crown. And that is what we're going through in our current situation. Belief results in spiritual life. Praise God. But what about uh, the suffering, the difficulty, the adversities? But it results, suffering results in spiritual muscles. And, you know, Christ suffered for us, and we're called to suffer like Christ suffered in the sense that uh, we give up our rights, we give up uh, our own will, and we allow Christ to work in and through us. There's a Christian leader from Sri Lanka who ministers there in an urban setting. Uh, his name is Fernando, and he writes this about the Western church. He said, the church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. And I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering or on what to do when we do suffer and hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. Have you thought about that, the theology of suffering? He goes on to write, The good life, comfort, convenience, and painless life have become necessities that people in the West view as their basic right. 
If they do not have these they, these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through trials. And I've challenged you before, and in my own life, I recognize that the most significant spiritual growth in my life has occurred in times of suffering and adversity. It's not in the times of what I consider the blessing and the smooth sailing days of my life. But, uh, you know, we like to worship the Lord of our blessings, don't we? That's an easy thing to do. But yet, do we worship the Lord of our sufferings? I would challenge you in that, I've been cha- as I've been challenged this week, that yes, I worship the Lord of my blessings, but do I worship the Lord of my sufferings? Well, four assurances as we come to the end of this passage is that uh, the courage in the face of opposition is a sign of divine judgment for our persecutors, whether we feel that they're a certain political party or people in our family or others uh, in our community. Uh, but Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10 talks about the fact that we can have courage in the face of opposition. Also, that our courage is a sign of our own salvation in the full redemptive sense, Romans chapter 1 and chapter 13. Suffering for Christ is an honor given by God. We don't view it as an honorable position, do we? Chapter 3, verse 10, as we'll see. And Paul shares in their struggle. That's the thing to remember is we're not in this alone as believers in Jesus Christ. And his example can encourage us as brothers and sisters in Christ. The phrase there in the end, to be in the same conflict which you saw in me. That word conflict is the word we get agony from or to agonize. It refers to Paul's persecution for the gospel. The Philippian believers had seen his persecution previously in Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 45. And now they are hearing about it once again as Epaphras, probably the pastor of the church at Philippi, is taking Paul's letter back to them. Thus, we have seen in uh, this this short beginning of this letter uh, that we are called to a countercultural lifestyle a countercultural way of living. In other words, how to be living, how our conduct is to influence others, our earthly conduct conduct for heavenly citizens. And thus we've seen in that. We've been unified, unwavering, enduring in the face of difficulty and suffering. And it forces us in these times of difficulty to reevaluate perhaps our, our purpose statement as individuals Making right decisions in life forces us to rethink our priorities. And choosing right priorities forces us to reconsider the importance of Christ in our lives. So God is bigger than our circumstances. We know that. The Bible declares it. He sees and understands all things in your life. And we can rest in the control of the fact that he is with us and he is in the midst of our difficulties and of our adversities. So we need to be connected to his viewpoint and his instruction to have our minds renewed day by day by the word of God, by the will of God, and by the Holy Spirit of God. One writer who spent a number of years and times in prison wrote these words, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in all the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy, 
The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and to avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. Come what may. Are you a heavenly citizen? Then your earthly conduct should reflect your citizenship. I'm going to send you out with a benediction this morning. And it's actually going to be really not designed as a benediction, but chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, where we see this citizenship idea uh, occur again. In verse 20, this is the Apostle Paul writing to us, and this is a reminder for us through this week, especially in the upheaval in our own nation, political system, elections, all of that. He reminds us, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things unto himself. Amen and amen. Have a great week. Go in God's grace. And thank you for being here.